The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi, this is Newt. I'm currently staying at home in Rome. To bring you this episode this week, I'm recording from my home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, this is the second in a series of episodes we're presenting about China and COVID-19. What role did China play in the spread of COVID-19 globally? What responsibility should they bear for the devastation the virus has caused? In this episode, I'll look at the role big data and artificial intelligence can play in tracking global pandemics or disease outbreaks anywhere in the world and make the case for why the United States health authorities should be using this advanced technology to create an early warning system to hopefully prevent the spread of future pandemics. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Cameron Khan, founder and CEO of Blue Dot and infectious disease physician. I'm delighted in the midst of everything that's going on, to have a chance to chat with and to introduce Dr. Cameron Khan. He's the founder and chief executive officer of Blue Dot. His background is as an infectious disease physician. I think when you get done hearing what he has achieved and how he has put it together, you're going to be truly amazed at some of the opportunities we faced in dramatically better anticipation of and management of our response to various pandemics or epidemics. Dr. Khan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What led you to become a specialist in epidemiology? 
as a physician, I was always fascinated with the field of infectious diseases. I think also was really interested in understanding not only what's happening with my patients, but how their illnesses might spill over into the population and affect others. I have a big practice in tuberculosis, for example. And so understanding what happens to my patient and then when they walk out of the clinic and they're out in the community, what's happening there? After I finished my medical training at the University of Toronto, I came down to New York and to Boston and did my infectious disease training. I'm trained as a public health and preventive medicine physician and then did some of my epidemiologic training at Columbia and Harvard and then came back to Toronto in 2003. Really have just always been kind of fascinated by infectious diseases and wanted to have that understanding that could bridge what's happening with the individual and how that goes out into the broader population. I was in New York when West Nile virus made the leap over into North America in 1999 and was there as well in 2001. You may remember after 9-11, anthrax was weaponized and sent through the U.S. postal system. So was around these public health emergencies and then came back to Toronto. And then my experience in 2003 really consolidated my interest in emerging diseases and emergency response. When you got back to Toronto in 2003, it was right in the middle of the SARS outbreak, wasn't it? It was actually just before SARS started. Okay. Shortly after I got here, this virus that nobody had ever heard of or seen before showed up in our hospitals, infected actually one of my close colleagues. A number of healthcare workers here in the city died in the line of duty. It overwhelmed our hospital, our public health infrastructure, and really crippled our city for four very, very long months. I think in many ways what people are feeling around the world today with COVID-19, we're feeling the same kind of thing with just a different coronavirus, the SARS coronavirus back in 2003. And for me, at the end of it, there was a sense that we've never seen anything like this before, but this won't be the last time. And now's the time to start thinking about ways we could perhaps get ourselves better prepared. What was the source of the SARS outbreak? It emerged in Guangdong province, probably in late 2002, started to amplify. You will see there are parallels here with COVID-19, started to increase in activity in Guangdong province, then moved over into neighboring Hong Kong. And then, of course, Hong Kong being a major global hub for transportation, quickly jumped around the globe to about two dozen different countries and cities, and then Toronto being one of them. And we just were unfortunate and we had an outbreak. There were many imported cases around the world, including in the United States. But this was one place where the virus caught fire, if you will, and started to trigger a few different waves of an outbreak that went on for almost four months. I happened to be in South Korea at the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. And it was interesting because the Koreans had taken really seriously the experience of SARS. And I think both Taiwan and Singapore were much more aggressive and sort of had a sense that we've been here before, we know how dangerous this is, and they reacted very, very fast. And it was really somehow SARS had imprinted Korea much deeper than it did the United States. Let me just first of all say I think every other city or country that has experienced this kind of outbreak. Korea had an outbreak of MERS in Seoul, I believe it was back in 2015. Hong Kong, of course, was hit very hard during the SARS outbreak, Singapore, Taiwan. 
Toronto also being one of those places where we had a significant outbreak. One of my close colleagues got infected with SARS. We had other frontline healthcare workers who died. And I think what that did is it really sent a lot of angst through the healthcare workforce. We're on the front lines and it's hard for us as clinicians to be able to have this global panoramic view of what's happening around the world. There's an adage in medicine, I believe, was coined by an American physician in the 1940s, that when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. And that's kind of what we're used to, thinking about the things that we see day in and day out in our own backyard. But our backyard has just gotten a whole lot bigger. And now we have to be thinking about events happening all around the world. In many ways, that was, for me, the inspiration to say, these diseases spread quickly, but we have the raw ingredients to actually spread information and knowledge even faster. We've got increasing access to data. We have advanced analytical tools like artificial intelligence to make sense of these data. And we can spread information through the internet faster than any outbreak can spread. So how do we take advantage of these types of digital tools and assets that we have and use them to be better prepared and to be better coordinated? We need to be providing this type of intelligence to the frontline healthcare workers because we rely on them to protect themselves and to protect the rest of us more effective and efficient in the way that we detect these threats and respond to them. You really got involved directly in thinking about ways to do this that I think is pretty intriguing how you've approached it. What led you to go to this kind of quantifiable approach? It did strike me that it was remarkably powerful what you've done. In 2003, I'm a scientist. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. So what I do is, like many other academics, I write grants and I start doing research. I'm interested in understanding if there are ways that we can better anticipate how diseases spread. I become particularly fascinated with the global airline transportation network as a conduit for the global spread of infectious diseases. It's often said that we're just an airplane right away. Can we understand this global network that are connecting the planet? If we can understand those, we may be able to better anticipate how diseases will spread. But I think one of the key issues really is optimization of time. And this is a theme that we're hearing quite a bit discussed around COVID-19. Time is a non-renewable resource. You don't get it back. And you've got to be using your time in the most effective and efficient way possible. So in 2013, that's when I ended up founding Blue Dot. The belief and thesis there was we have the raw ingredients to build a digital global early warning system for infectious diseases. Let's accelerate that. Let's actually move even faster than we can in the academic sector and draw from the various talents that are out there in machine learning and medicine and epidemiology and let's bring a diverse group together to tackle this problem because we know the next threat is coming. We can't tell you exactly when it's going to appear, but we know that there will be threats arising in the not-too-distant future. I'm happy if you'd like to kind of talk you through the pillars of this global early warning system and how they're all integrated and how they go from detection to assessment of risk to dissemination of knowledge to empower some kind of response and timely action. Yeah, I think that'd be helpful because it seems to me that you've broken the code on thinking about a worldwide management system for anticipating and focusing on communicable diseases, not just pandemics or viruses. So walk us through how this works. The first one is 
detection. We have to be able to detect outbreaks and threats early because that's how we give ourselves lead time. What we learned during the SARS outbreak was that if we wait for official reports from government agencies about outbreaks, we may be waiting longer than we would like. The next is dispersion. We know that humans have become the vectors that are carrying many of these diseases around the world. Just to put this in perspective, last year in 2019, the world traveled over 7 trillion kilometers on commercial flights. I mean, we actually analyze all these data. And to put that in perspective, that's over 20,000 round trips to and from the sun. This is a lot of movement. About a trillion of that actually comes just from travel to and from the United States, which is the largest and most mobile population on earth. So we recognize that these types of diseases can leap across continents. So the next pillar, the third, is what we would call disruption. And this is a hard one. This is one we're continuing to work on. Now, diseases spread around the world all the time. I see them in the emergency department at my hospital, people with malaria and dengue fever and other types of infections, but they don't all cause outbreaks. Now, what is it that actually triggers an outbreak? And this is sometimes called the infectious disease triangle, that the impact from a microbe really lies at the crossroads of the characteristics of the pathogen or the microbe itself, the attributes of the population in which it exists, as well as the environmental conditions where it exists. So as you can imagine, for every single microbe, there is a different footprint. The fourth one is dissemination of knowledge. This is a really important one for me. And the way that information typically flows is it typically goes about an outbreak. If there's news of an outbreak, the first audience that typically learns about it is the public health sector. And that's because their job is to understand, well, what's happening in the population? Now, certainly we know that not every government necessarily in public health agency has the appropriate resources, both capital and human resources, to be able to conduct this kind of surveillance. But nonetheless, they typically find out first. Then there's kind of a trickle-down effect that happens to the healthcare community. We need to be empowering governments, public health agencies and other branches of government, so that they actually are better able to protect their citizens. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. You sent out an early warning on December 31st. Was that a warning that something interesting was happening or a warning that there was a potential epidemic or what was the intensity of your early warning? Well, we were actually very concerned back on December 31st. I do almost remember kind of gasping a little bit when we had read this news. And it was largely because of the parallels to the SARS outbreak. We didn't know that it was going to be a pandemic. Normally, our information goes out to you based on your location. So if I'm in Toronto and there's an outbreak in my backyard, I will learn about it. If there's an outbreak halfway around the world and there are 10,000 people traveling from that location to Toronto, I will learn about it. We sent this out to everyone. And basically what we highlighted was there is an outbreak involving reported 27 individuals seems to be associated with this wet market. It doesn't seem to be associated with the usual suspects that might cause a pneumonia. And so we will continue to monitor this situation and let you know more about it as we learn. But this is something that is worthy of paying attention to. And so our partners and clients are across in 12 countries. We sent that information out. It was before 10 a.m. on December 31st. I do want to highlight one other important thing, which is We're a very social impact-oriented organization. As this happened, we immediately wrote this article, submitted it to an open-access, peer-reviewed scientific journal. We did that on January 8th. And we did that because we don't have lines of communication with every organization or country, but this would be the best way for our work to be peer-reviewed and then openly accessible to anyone to understand what are the places at risk. That's where we had, for example, identified that Bangkok, for instance, was right at the top of our list of the cities to look for next. And lo and behold, Bangkok was the first city that actually had reported cases of COVID-19 as it spread out of mainland China. So that's kind of the warning that we had sent to our clients, but then more broadly, using the scientific literature as a way to open this information up to anyone to make it broadly accessible. If the Chinese government had understood how risky this was, and had canceled Chinese New Year when they have this enormous flow of people. How big a difference do you think that might have made? I've also been studying mass gatherings as an academic for years, everything from the Olympic Games to the Hajj pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia. 
mass gatherings can be a massive amplifier and accelerator for outbreaks. It's very intuitive. If you bring large numbers of people together and it's a disease that spreads from person to person, you increase the number of connection points, you increase the opportunity for the virus to spread. And then as those individuals move back to their home locations, you now actually accelerate that dispersion. So yes, this was happening right around the time of the Chinese New Year festivities. I know this is an outstanding question, what was known exactly when, but I do think had some of those gatherings been avoided, the trajectory of this outbreak may have been different. It's possible that it would have still unfolded as a pandemic, but we may have bought ourselves more time and been able to mitigate some of the impacts. President Trump, closest travel from China on the 31st of January. But we don't move to cut to Europe until the 11th of March and Britain on the 14th. And it seemed to have been a surprise to people that the disease could go both ways. That is, you could come from China to the U.S., but you can also come from China to Europe to the U.S. And I think that's part of what happened in New York City is that they had a false sense of confidence that it was a West Coast problem when in fact it was coming right at them from Europe. When you were looking at your projections, did you see this kind of 360 degree dispersal pattern? Absolutely. I think our analytics identified, just if we looked at Wuhan, let alone some of the broader neighboring airports adjacent to Wuhan, because again, we didn't know the extent of the outbreak. When we did see the first case show up in Bangkok, I believe it was on January 13th, that was an indication to us we're not talking about a few dozen cases in a city of 11 million. And when we look at the flows of travelers, when you see cases showing up in another country, the fire, if you will, is bigger than a little spark. It's got to be much, much larger. When we looked at travel, we saw in the U.S., the places that were at greatest risk from our analysis back on December 31st, were San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York City. Nonstop flights into San Francisco, nonstop flights into New York City. Los Angeles had a significant number of travelers post-connections. There weren't nonstop flights. So when we do look at San Francisco, and you may have read some of the recent reports that the first known death from COVID-19 in the U.S. was in Santa Clara County, right adjacent to the airport in San Francisco, and then, of course, New York City, we can see, has really suffered an explosive outbreak. There may be multiple reasons, but one of them certainly could be that it was seeded very early and kind of amplified and grew just sort of beneath the surface without recognizing that it was there. And these types of things, as you know, can grow exponentially. If you're caught a little bit late, the growth trajectory can be quite rapid. So when we look at the U.S., I think what we have seen with the earliest death and the outbreak in New York City is very much aligned with the early analytics that we did back at the end of December. So you're currently, as I understand it, working with both California and the city of Chicago? Correct. What are the kind of things you provide them or that you help them mm -hmm. with? Well, what we've been building with Blue Dot over the last several years is really thinking about solutions across the entire course or life cycle of an outbreak. With our work in Chicago, 
it's about not just thinking about COVID-19. It's actually about building the systems and implementing the systems that are giving that 360 panoramic view of infectious disease threats on a day-to-day basis and understanding how all those outbreaks are connected to Chicago and what kinds of risks there may be on a day-to-day basis, how to prioritize and understand all the risks across the globe. In working with California, as we start to look at transmission within our own communities, not thinking globally now, but looking literally in our own backyards, is we've also been working with, and I want to underscore anonymous data, it's all aggregated from the locations of mobile devices in these communities to better understand population movements at a local scale. And that helps us understand things like stay-at-home orders and our populations adhering to that, where might there be congregations occurring, so that ultimately your finite health and human resources, you can be using them in the most effective and efficient and coordinated manner possible. And so those are a few examples of how we've been able to work with the state of California and the city of Chicago to generate some really localized insights about the spread of COVID-19 domestically within communities. And as we start to think about reopening our economies, how do we look inwards and manage the outbreak? But how do we also keep one eye looking outwards and thinking about where introductions might be coming from next? There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you a little surprised that the 
virus has not been more devastating in the third world. I don't sense the scale of crisis you might have expected. If you look in Italy or France or Great Britain or the U.S. for that matter, we seem to be in more trouble than places in Africa or parts of South Asia. Just because we can't see it right now doesn't mean that it's not happening. And it also is that many of the developing countries are less connected, which means they are probably seeded later. They just may be earlier in the course of the outbreak. I would honestly say I would be surprised if somehow developing countries do not experience devastating outbreaks. I really worry about those countries where there are just enormous disparities in access to housing and income and what the consequences may be. There are some questions about what role does the environment play? Most of the world has no immunity to this virus, but maybe things like temperature and humidity might play a role possibly in maybe introducing a little bit of a headwind. I don't think it's going to prevent this from spreading. But we are seeing data now from places like Brazil and Ecuador and other developing countries where there is a swing that is going up. I would be kind of presuming that this will get worse and operating under that assumption rather than presuming that things will go well. We can hope for the best, but I think we want to do everything we can to be preparing for the worst case scenario. I think it's yet to be seen. And we know that if you're not doing widespread testing, you just can't actually see what's happening. When you see it, it's when there are large numbers of deaths. That is obviously becomes much more apparent. But right now, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Probably the month of May and June will, I think, reveal whether or not these countries are experiencing larger outbreaks than we are aware of at this time seems to be a general consensus that there's a real potential danger that we will beat this down in the relatively near future in the industrial countries, but that we could get a second wave in six or eight or nine months from now. Wouldn't it make sense to take your model and the things you're trying to do and lay it out and actually have our first real intense planning and intense implementation in that cycle because right now people are aware of how dangerous this is. We need to find a strategy that lets us avoid a second total shutdown of the economy. And to do that, we need to have very early warning and very early management of the process. Early on, it's early detection. It's a risk of introduction. Now we're dealing with trying to manage the local transmission of this. But as we come past the peak, we will find ourselves where New Zealand is or China or South Korea is where there's very little or limited transmission locally or domestically within those countries. And so the shift is going to then move to as this pandemic rolls across different parts of the world, how do we then utilize our resources in the most effective way possible, anticipate where this may be coming in from and do that strategically and do it in a way that's really data-driven because what will happen is post-peak, most of the population will still be susceptible to this virus. While it has spread significantly, it's not that there's widespread immunity. We still have to understand more about what happens after infection and are people immune. But the next introduction, the next ember, if you will, could trigger another outbreak and lead into a second wave. So I think we need to be thinking carefully about that. 
But what I will say is, I think it's so important is that we also have to be thinking about implementing systems to look past COVID-19. Everyone knows COVID-19 is here now, but we don't know when the next thing is going to appear and the next outbreak won't necessarily care whether we're experiencing a COVID-19 pandemic or not. It could come whenever. And so I think this is ultimately about building systems, building decision-making processes, empowering the whole of society to mobilize around this response for our individual benefit and our collective benefit. My thought is that you have an excuse right now to take the next six or eight months and develop that universal mechanism as a method of responding to the potential for a second wave. Because right now you're going to have the intensity and the awareness of how important it is. If you wait until after this one fades away, as you know, it's radically harder to get resources and attention in between crises. That is definitely true. Some refer to this as the panic neglect cycle. And you're absolutely right. I mean, our brains are hardwired in a way where we're reactive. It's hard to get people's attention. It's hard to tell someone while their house is on fire, they should install a smoke detector. But as things start to wind down a little bit and we have a moment to breathe and reflect, that's the right kind of moment to be thinking proactively about a resurgence of that fire or the next one. Because we have a real fear that this thing may come back, we have a much higher pressure point to buy the fire detector than we would if we thought this was gone. I think it's also the breadth of the impact. In 2003, Toronto was a microcosm of what's being experienced in the world today, which was we felt that fear, we felt that panic. We looked out in the streets and they were empty. It was a multi-billion dollar hit. Nobody wanted to come to the city of Toronto. So that coronavirus crippled cities. This one has crippled the planet. So I think there is a broad recognition that these types of threats can have devastating health consequences, economic consequences, social impacts. And so we're really going to have to use this as an opportunity to be thinking ahead and building and implementing these systems. We have the capabilities to do things in a way that is smarter and faster and more timely and better coordinated. I think it's really just a matter of the will. What we've been doing at Blue Dot, that memory is seared into my brain and it is what gets me up every day out of bed, day after day, thinking about the inevitable one that is coming and how do we get ourselves ready for it. So if we had been wired to pick up on your December 31st warning, and we had moved appropriately, how much different would the last four months have been? I think it would have been very different. I think the question there is, does an insight lead to an action? But if there was an early recognition and then various steps taken, especially around things like early testing, really just an understanding of what's happening in terms of cases, are they going up or going down? I think a lot of these things really could have mitigated and lessened the impact. South Korea had a big outbreak centered around Daegu, but they managed to use a lot of their resources to try and get in front of this. Singapore learned a lot of lessons from the SARS outbreak. They kept their curve pretty flat almost for two months. So I think there are lots of things that one could do to use time to possibly prevent or failing that at least mitigate and blunt the consequences and impacts. I'm really delighted that you would take the time to do this. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interest in the work that we're doing and for a chance to talk about it. 
thank you to my guest, Dr. Cameron Khan. You can learn more about the virus spread from Wuhan to the rest of the world and Blue Dot on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slump. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we explore with a real expert the potential for a vaccine, what's involved, and the likelihood that in the near future, we're going to be in a better place with COVID-19. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.